Future of Finance podcast, where finance finds its future. Hello, I'm Dominic Hobson, co-founder of Future of Finance. My guest today is Vadim Sobolevsky, co-founder of Futureflow, a private company whose services use data to address financial crime and make economic policy more effective. Prior to starting Futureflow, uh, Vadim worked in fixed income at Barclays Capital and in asset management, most recently as a portfolio manager at the hedge fund Finisterre Capital in London. Vadim, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Now, I've already said quite a bit about you, but do tell us a bit more about yourself uh, first. Uh, how did you come to be running Finisterre, not Finisterre Capital, running Futureflow? Yes, sure. So we started Futureflow about six years ago at this stage, and it was actually quite accidental. I started working on the idea behind Futureflow, which had been sort of lurking somewhere in the back of my head for uh, quite a few years prior to that. And I started actually putting pen to paper while I was looking for a job. I was uh, in a transition period between jobs, and I thought that, well, that was a great time to actually crystallize some of the thinking that I've had behind what eventually became Futureflow. And so it was really just a, just a fun research project, which I didn't expect to lead um, to the company creation, but it became so fascinating and so interesting. And I think it was quite topical for the time, considering that it was in 2016, that um, you know, we, I, I started spending more and more time thinking about it and actually designing the concept around it that at some point um, I decided to start a company and uh, my co-founder, Xavier, whom I had known for many years from my previous job, um, was a great supporter of the idea. He's obviously a, a, a very clever guy. I, I always valued his opinions, and you know, we, we, we bounced back, uh, back and forth quite a few ideas while we were working. So we decided that uh, that's really what, should we, what we should be doing. So before we knew it, we started a company. And for quite some time, it was more of a... It was almost like a research effort, you know. It was it was a very conceptual sort of uh, thinking process where we were uh, engaging with the banking system, engaging with various regulators that we knew at the time, trying to figure out uh, where there's an application for our idea, what what part of our idea sticks, um, what part doesn't, and uh, that really how it started back in 2016. Mm-hmm. You've kind of begun to to answer this question, but there is a reason your business is called Future Flow, and that's that the flows between uh, entities are more interesting than the than the entities themselves. Uh, so, when exactly did this possibility of exploiting that opportunity first occur to you? Yes, yeah, so I started uh, thinking about this first uh, many years ago. It must have been around two thousand nine, two thousand ten. It was kind of at the depth of the. Uh, global financial crisis that we had back in 2008. I was a fresh MBA graduate or recent MBA graduate at the time. I was in between jobs, I believe. And one day I remember riding a subway in New York and thinking that, I kind of thinking about my current financial situation at the time. And I thought, you know, it's really interesting that the money that I had in my bank account at the time um, had quite random sources. You know, some of it came from, I don't know, a consulting gig that I was doing at the time. Some of it came from, um, you know, my wife who might, might have been working somewhere. Basically it had lots of, you know, sort of random um, connections there. And I thought that that all stops with my bank account. You know, when I go around and I spend my money, none of that information is, is available. And of course that's by design, but 
what I started thinking about is that knowing what sort of linkages exist in an economy based on this flow of funds um, is actually a very valuable um, thing to have. And it potentially is something that makes the flow of funds as such very interesting from an analytical point of view and potentially um, makes the principals, you know, the entities who, who spend money in transactions uh, a lot less relevant, let's put it this way. So the way I was imagining it at the time is that if, let's say, if I walk into a store and I want to buy a T-shirt and, you know, I pay with my debit card for the T-shirt, or let's say I give them I don't know, a $20 bill to pay for the T-shirt, uh, the business doesn't really know anything about the money that it receives. It's not really curious or interested in the money that it receives. It's interested in me. It tries to understand who I am. It tries to, you know, usually when you go, a lot of times you go to a store, people ask for your postcode or your age, you know, they kind of try to look at you to figure out what is our consumer like, right? What is their demographics? What is their sort of, you know, where, where do they live and what postcode, et cetera. Trying to understand what is the profile of their typical customer. But when I'm buying that T-shirt, I'm giving them money, whether it's cash or whether it's money from my bank account. And that money has a lot of information, traces of information. That is, they're very valuable as well, theoretically, but that's not really known. And I thought that if, we, if, if it were known, then we would know a lot more about the economy. We would know a lot more about what's happening in the economic system without really trying to understand the principles. And so it, it ultimately came down to understanding the flow of funds. And this is why very casually, when I thought about that idea, we, you know, I started thinking about well, flow, stock versus flow, so flow. <laughs> and of course, that's how we think about flow in the future. So this is how the, the concept of future flow came to my mind. And when many years later, we started the company, we didn't really want to spend too much time thinking about how to name it. And I said, well, when I started thinking about this, I used to think of it as future flow. Should we just call the company that? And that's how it started. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the opportunities that Future Flow is, is aimed at is, is financial crime. And this has struck me for some time now as a as a almost inexplicable conundrum that you've got banks and asset managers and insurance companies and others spending literally hundreds of billions of dollars a year on anti-money laundering, know your client, countering the financing of terrorism, sanctions, screening checks, buying data, running these highly often often manual checks to try and work out whether this money is coming from a bad actor or not. But it doesn't seem to work. It doesn't seem to deter people. Uh, they seem to catch a very small proportion of, of the money actually being laundered. You're spending hundreds of billions of dollars essentially on a box ticking compliance process. So that's a, a very inefficient, very wasteful, totally ineffective um, process as far as I can see from the outside. Indeed. Am I right? I mean, what are they doing wrong? Well, it's interesting. You are right, but it's hard to say that they're doing anything wrong. I think conceptually, technically speaking, they're doing everything right because what, what financial institutions have been tasked with doing over the past few decades really is, is precisely as you described it. It's the box ticking exercise. I don't think the aim of financial anti-financial crime checks over the past um, few decades, I don't think the aim has been to catch financial crime. I think the aim has been to demonstrate the effort to deter financial crime. Um, that's how I think this whole system was designed, you know, in the, in the late 20th century. And so I don't, you know, the banks are just being, you know, they, they're basically doing what they're being told to do. And it's really the authorities who are at fault here because um, I don't think they originally 
um, put the right KPIs in front of the financial institutions. So if you think about, yes, if we think about, if we think critically about what financial institutions are doing, they're spending a lot, a lot like order of magnitudes more money to run these processes compared to what they actually catch, right? So the, from the financial institution's point of view, it would make a lot more sense to simply stop and just lose that, you know, lose the money, whatever the money they're losing on financial crime, just, you know, just write it off. It's a bit like with fraud, you know, the financial institution is not really tasked with catching fraud as hard as in such a harsh way as catching financial crime, such as money laundering. So a lot of times they just write it off, right? But you, you lose some money to scammers or, or to, you know, one of those royal mail frauds, et cetera. Well, you just write it off, right? With, with um, money laundering and terrorist financing, it's different. You have to do it regardless of how much you catch. So in other words, the, the task is to, to run the checks <laughs> that you're being told to run, not really to catch anything. If you catch something, that's great. But if not, at least you have to have those processes in place. So it's really the question of KPIs for me. And the KPIs are being set by local and global authorities or local and international authorities. And it's only now really over the past you know, couple of years that we're seeing the authorities really rethinking uh, the overall framework and aiming more towards the outcomes rather than simply the check marking exercise. One of the problems which institutions I talk to claim is a major source of inefficiency is of course the large number of false positives that what they're doing throws up. How large a problem do you think that is? False positives um, has always been a huge problem for financial crime reporting. Um, and that has to do both with the fact that the processes, you know, the, the, the typical rules-based processes of flagging and catching financial crime are, are very rigid. Um, so it, unavoidably, they, they throw off a lot of false positives. So uh, again, to, to give you a very simple example, one of the typical experiences that I think most of us may have had is in the UK, at least, you know, you go, you spend your card abroad, it works, but then you come back and you try to spend your card locally and it's blocked. <laughs> right? So we, at first you wonder, why does this always happen? And if you think about this sort of hypothetical st stylized processes that are running somewhere in the back of these institutions, you know, you've used your card abroad. That there's a rule that they may have something that may have something to do with with fraud or crime, and 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 then it has to be blocked when you're back. Um, so that's one thing. It's really just the rigidity of these rules-based systems uh, are are uh, bound to throw off a lot of false positives. And another problem, which is a little bit trickier, is that uh, going back to our previous discussion, is that financial institutions are incentivized to over-report because at the end of the day, the way they report financial crime. Um, aims uh, uh, more at just the process of reporting as opposed to the process of actually catching something, right? So in other words, it's better to report and be wrong than not to report and God forbid be wrong there, right? So, so a false positive is essentially is, um, you know, it's, it's an unfortunate um, number, but it's, it's probably the most rational thing to do um, from the financial institution's point of view. Of course, it creates a huge uh, burden on the authorities as such, you know, all financial crime um, investigation units in most major countries are overwhelmed with the number of suspicious activity reports. Most of them, as far as I understand, never really get investigated. They're just somewhere there. But at least, again, going back to that framework of, of checking boxes, you know, it seems to be checking boxes on, on all fronts. So that's why, uh, that's why we see a lot of it. So we have, in effect, malign incentives, which persuade banks to 
report more than they should. It's a kind of, it's designed to manufacture false positives. Now, one of the ways in which I, banks could perform better, and, and, and I guess your, your model at FutureFlow would, would hinge upon this, is if banks were persuaded to actually share data among themselves. How reasonable is it, do you think, to expect banks to do that? Or are they just too sensitive about privacy and confidentiality or contributing more than they get back? How easy is it to persuade banks to share information, share data? It really, it really depends on who you talk to. Uh, and by that, I mean financial institutions themselves, and I mean jurisdictions where these conversations might take place. In some jurisdictions, uh, this could be a non-starter, and others, um, financial institutions are a lot more open-minded and forward-looking in the way they approach the problem. Uh, and, and also, that's not really a static picture. The picture is really has really been changing over the past literally maybe two or three years. Uh, prior to that, I think it was basically a non-starter conversation in terms of sharing data across multiple financial institutions. And that had to do both uh, with the uh, reluctance of financial institutions to basically give away their sensitive information. And here I'm getting at things like competition and you know the competitive edge, basically. Uh, I've, I've had many banks laugh at my face and tell me oh, we would never share data with our peers. I mean, this is our, this is our um, gold, if you will. And it also had to do with just basically the unknown unknowns having to do with you know, the uh, opacity around um, you know, sharing sensitive information, confidentiality, um, bank secrecy, et cetera. Uh, both of these uh, have started to change in the past few years. Ironically, uh, regarding the unknown unknowns in terms of the liability of sharing information, we've actually, uh, I think we've benefited quite a lot from the emergence of the GDPR. Because before that, uh, you would think that it would be otherwise, right? But it's actually not. The GDPR, in my mind, has been extremely helpful in terms of um, accelerating the approach to uh, the, the path towards sharing information across financial institutions. And that's because it made the conversation about um, this process much more concrete and much more to the point. Because, you know, five years ago, you would start this conversation with somebody and you will get cut off in the first few seconds with like, oh, but what about secrecy and data protection, right? Because it was just a very fuzzy conversation. Whereas now people know, like the GDPR created a, a very fine structure around this conversation, right? Well, well, what about it? We have the GDPR, it tells you how things can be done. It can, tells you what can be done. It tells, tells you what cannot be done. It really gives you an idea of how a process can be designed in a very, um, in a very elegant way uh, to, to make things work hypothetically. It may, no, may not always be easy, but at least it's very clear that something can be done because there's a set of rules and a set of guidelines. Of course, they're not super clear, but at least it creates a structure it, around which a very intelligent and constructive conversation can be had. Mm -hmm. That's one thing. And then the other thing is that I think just over the past few years, many large financial institutions have really been overwhelmed with fines and penalties um, and frankly, with embarrassment of having just awful financial crime being revealed um, as passing through through their systems. And that also created this realization that that process of box ticking that we described at the beginning of the conversation, just it just doesn't work anymore. It doesn't work financially from the PL point of view, if you will, and it also just doesn't work reputationally. You know, the great example that comes to mind is what we've seen in Australia over the past um three or four years, obviously. First, we, um, we had a huge scandal with the Commonwealth Bank of Australia, 
which was, you know, obviously it was about financial crime, but it was like this neutral kind of faceless financial crime. We didn't really know what it was about. But then it got followed with um, um, uh, an equally large scandal at Westpac. And that had a much sort of, from my perspective, it had a much more sort of humanly understandable toll on it because it had to do with child exploitation. You know, it's something that you could feel as a consumer, right? And I think, I think financial institutions being ultimately consumer brands, um, they're becoming more and more sensitive about it. They realize that having your brand um, be associated with your child trafficking is just not good. You know, it's it's bad for PNL. Yes, you get be can be fined a billion Australian dollars or close to that. That's bad enough. But also, what about you know, if you're one of the biggest banks in the country, how is your business going to do when the country, when the population of the country just starts to feel not very well about what you're doing, right? So that, I think that creates the incentives for, um, for these institutions to really rethink how they're doing this, how they're approaching the problem. And that's why in many jurisdictions, we're seeing a much more open conversation towards a collaborative approach towards fighting financial crime. The obvious example, of course, is here in Europe, uh, just recently, uh, recently being a couple of years ago, the initiative got launched in the Netherlands, where the largest Dutch banks came together and formed a cooperative to fight financial crime jointly. And it, it's exactly for these reasons, there's been an open realization that no matter how much money each of these individual financial institutions throws at the problem, um, they are unable to fight it. Um, so they basically just decided, why don't we try to do it together and see if that works better? Hopefully they succeed. Obviously, it's something that we're watching very closely. And there are similar developments pretty much, you know, all over Europe, um, Australia as well. Here in the UK, there's been some effort uh, that we've been involved in uh, to some extent to design these collaborative approaches to fight financial crime. So the situation is definitely changing. Is there technically a way that banks can share data? You've talked about the need for collaboration and cooperation. You're seeing it happen, as you mentioned, in the, in the Netherlands. Is there technically a way in which banks could actually, um, in effect, or you could do this for them, uh, kind of monitor financial flows without breaching uh, privacy and confidentiality and bank secrecy requirements? In other words, kind of comply with GDPR and interbank confidentiality concerns, but actually still get to see the information you need to see. Is that technically possible? Well, where there's a will, there's a way, right? So uh, it is technically possible for, and we're convinced, obviously, that's why we're working in this space. Um, it is also possible from the regulatory point of view. So our effort at FutureFlow has always been, we've always seen this as twofold. Um, we've always thought of ourselves as a, as a, provider of technology, but as a technological solution, but also as a provider of a regulatory solution. So we've always seen our job as to create something that works technically, but also to design something that works from the regulatory and sort of compliance point of view, just theoretically, so to speak. And uh, both seem to be producing, both um, efforts seem to be producing very strong results. So obviously on the analytical front, We've, we've participated in quite a few projects that um, have demonstrated outstanding results and outstanding promise in terms of what can be achieved by um, uh, monitoring uh, flow of funds across financial institutions in a given jurisdiction. On the regulatory front, uh, we've also been quite fortunate that we've been working with, uh, with the Information Commissioner here. The, the Information Commissioner's office were part of their GDPR sandbox by, by, back in 2019 and 2020. And that's been a very... Um, uh, I would say, fruitful uh, 
project for us because the, the ICO really helped us to uh, understand how our technology fits within the, the data protection um, environment here in the UK and I guess broader, broader in Europe as well, given that now that the, the, the UK is not part of the EU anymore, but the laws, at least for now, are, are very similar. So that's been an extremely um, helpful and important conversation for us. And what we see, what we've seen over the past couple of years following that cooperation is that our findings um, and our joint work uh, is being picked up by various um, by various uh, national and cross-national bodies as an example of how uh, cross-bank data sharing can take place can take place at scale, you know, at a systematic level and hopefully produce the results that go beyond the, the box-seeking exercise. Do you find banks are more willing to share findings that they have as opposed to, to raw data? And I'm thinking here, you know, I've heard regulators encourage banks to, I don't know, if they have a ransomware attack, to share information about that with, with other banks, or if they come across a bad actor to share details of that bad actor with other banks. So they're kind of being encouraged to do that by regulators. A lot of banks talk about, you know, how helpful it would be to, to do that. In your experience, are they, are they more willing to share concrete findings of that kind than they are to share a whole stack of data? Yeah, well, it is much easier. That's, that's really where the, the catch-22 comes. Um, so if you think about the, the, the sort of the tension between uh, financial crime laws, broad, broadly speaking, and data protection guidelines, uh, the conflict, the perceived conflict has always been that it's much easier to share information where you already have a suspicion, right? Because the law allows you to do that. And as you said, in fact, the law encourages you to do that. However, the difficulty is that finding that suspicion in the first place, that's the part that is difficult. And where uh, data protection can potentially be perceived as um, as a constraint is in this fact that it's finding this suspicion in the first place that is much harder to do in isolation rather than by work, rather than by working in cooperation with other institutions. So this is that um, that uh, catch twenty two, if you will. That obviously we all recognize that it would be much easier for financial institutions to find suspicion in the first place if they work together, but that the the broader sort of set of laws doesn't make it easier in terms of enabling it in the context of the data protection legislation. That's why you always hear um, that you have been hearing for the past few years after the GDPR has been introduced that there is apparently a tension between financial crime aims, if you will, or anti-financial crime aims and data protection um, aims. We don't believe that that's the case, but uh, there is that dichotomy. Uh, but when it comes to sharing suspicion, as you mentioned, you know, sharing findings or problems, that is much easier because as you said, the law does allow that. and and. Uh, but but that here you already sort of have overcome the the biggest problem, which is finding it in the first place. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, talking of finding it in the first place, um, let's imagine that you can get hold of vast quantities of data from multiple banks. How hard is it to find something useful in that? You've talked very eloquently about you know false positives as being a massive problem, for example. So let's say you get this this large pile of data from lots of different banks. Is, are we talking 80-20 rule here, that, that there's, there's something interesting in 20% of what you're looking at, or is it much, much narrower than that? Is this finding needles in haystacks? In our experience, it, it resembles a lot more finding needles in the haystack. Uh, now, of course, you have to understand that the haystack is in, in the context of a typical developed world uh, financial jurisdiction. The haystack is humongous. Right? We're talking about you know, a typical mid-sized European country is a jurisdiction where you can easily see many tens of millions of accounts. Um, 
And so, it, so the haystack is very large. And so even a needle within that haystack can be quite large, right? Um, but, but nevertheless, it is, it, is, it is far more fine-grained than 80-20. In our experience, something around maybe 1% or less of, um, of the overall financial universe in a jurisdiction is something that deserves closer attention and closer scrutiny. And where uh, technologies like ours uh, really help is that it really, first of all, it, it, it helps you to zero in on that needle, right? It, it, it makes it very easy to find it. And it makes it very easy to analyze it in the broader context without really knowing much about, um, you know, the the underlying mm -hmm. entities that are being analyzed. That's really the that's really where the attractiveness of of our technology, I believe, and and some others that um, are available in this space, comes in. So I just to be clear, you're saying that when you find this this needle and you don't know much about the individual or the or the counterparty or the the entity is what you're actually doing here is 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 purely looking for needles you're not saying well um i'm looking here for um robin abramovich uh breaching sanctions or i'm i'm looking over here for the central bank of iran buying u.s treasury bonds so you're kind of not you don't know what you're looking for but you're sifting through this data set and finding things which are suspicious which is it are you do you know what you're looking for or you find suspicious things we we don't necessarily know so so there are two I, I cannot speak for other technologies but speaking for our technologies we we always um think of it as having two modes of operation one is what we call pro proactive and one is what we call reactive when it comes to a reactive mode um it is a it is an approach where our technology relies on some initial intelligence from uh, the participating financial institutions in order to tell them a lot more about what they're looking at. So for example, you know, your typical financial institution would have some pre-existing suspicion, would have some red flags you know, going from their legacy systems, et cetera. And the problem is that uh, those red flags, those alarm bells, if you will, uh, really happen out of context. You know, you, your transaction may happen, may, your, your transaction or an account may get flagged as suspicious and uh, that's really it, right? Like that's what you know. And then you have a lot of personal information to be working on when it comes to that account. And by definition, you're confined to what is available to your institution because it's not very easy with the, all of that personal information to, to contact the bank across the street and to say, we have a problem with this account. Um, you, you, can you tell us more about what you may have on your end <laughs> about the, that may have something to do with this account, right? That's a very difficult conversation to have. So where a platform like ours is really helpful is that it immediately creates a much broader cross um, cross-bank context in which you can analyze that account and see lots of others that may be um, uh, that may be relevant to that to that analysis so essentially it creates context it creates depth around something which can be very one-dimensional otherwise so that's what we call the reactive mode of analysis and here it's not us that know something about the entity that is being analyzed it's really the financial institution itself and it's in the in doing so it is leveraging the shared collective intelligence of the entire banking community that is participating in this cross-bank ML utility. The other mode of operation is what we call proactive analysis, and which, which is something where our platform works by itself and uh, discovers these pockets of suspicion, discovers these outliers, discovers these, these icebergs, if you will, and, and flags them as something that is uh, you know, potentially worthy of attention of either single or multiple financial institutions. And here the system is working without knowing anything at all about the underlying entities that it's analyzing. 
And the aim here is to create this sort of symbiotic process where the financial institutions that do get alerted about these um, uh, spots of suspicion then can use their in-house intelligence to enrich uh, and um, investigate the problem further or to invalidate it as something that, again, <laughs> I hate to use the word false positives, but let's face it, we'll probably have to live with them. Hopefully there will be fewer of them, but, uh, but, but they can easily be false positives as well. Essentially what we're looking for in this proactive mode is, um, is significant outliers that have to do with the complexity of the network uh, in which they operate. And that is something that can be seen very obviously in, in our environment. Is there a, an upside to this? We've seen that even with the very expensive and completely useless system of financial crime checks that's presently used, there is at least the upside of being able to demonstrate to the regulator that you're taking the problem seriously. But is there a real upside to any of this work in which, in fact, you could start to identify new business opportunities by looking at the data flows? Yes, that's, that's a very interesting question. Um, it certainly is something that takes us back to, to the origins of future flow. This is where we started in the first place, is, is not really to catch financial crime. A financial crime is something that we started to focus on later when we realized that almost every single financial institution that we've been speaking with throughout that period that I mentioned when we first had this ideation session, trying to figure out what the industry likes about idea, it's really at that time that the concept of financial crime came up because every single conversation would end up going there. <laughs> but uh, of course, originally what we were after is understanding um, the, the overall economic activity in the financial system in the, in the given market. And yeah, you're absolutely right. We believe that there's quite a lot in terms of understanding the overall flow of funds and providing insights to policymakers, not necessarily when it comes to just financial crime, but also when it comes to issues like uh, liquid monitoring in the banking system, um, general economic activity in, in a given jurisdiction. Because here we're talking about, um, again, separating the individuals, if you will, or the entities, you know, the, the principles that are transacting and the money that is exchanging hands in transactions. So the money that is exchanging hands in transactions is um, faceless, right? It's not, it's not something that uh, carries personal information necessarily. It's something that is orthogonal, as I, as I always like to say, um, to, the, to the principles that transact. And it's something, therefore, that can be analyzed uh, in its own right. And that analysis, we believe, is very valuable. Now, can I ask you where you've got to with your particular service? Have you got banks and regulators signing up as, as clients and the services you offer? So, uh, when it comes to the financial crime um, product that we have created, that's all I'm talking about here. Yeah. Yes, yes. Uh, so we uh, we we we've had uh, quite a bit of uh, interaction with the regulatory community, mostly in the UK and 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 in some other parts of of the world, where we've demonstrated the technology to to very successful results um, on synthetic data. So we were part of two FCA tech sprints uh, that were specifically dedicated to cross bank financial crime analytics here in the UK. One of them, the second one, which was run in 2019, was actually run jointly with U.S. Treasury. So this is where our platform was deployed on, um, uh, on a large synthetic data set that was purpose-built for, um, for evaluating technologies that discover and analyze financial crime. And there we demonstrated, I would say, well, the industry believes outstanding results in terms of the possibilities of, of this approach. Uh, subsequently to that, uh, we served as a technology provider to what we believe was 
the world's first attempt to pool real-life transactional data across multiple institutions. This is a, a pilot or, or a POC that took place here in the United Kingdom in 2019, shortly after the text print, actually. And this is something that was orchestrated by Deloitte. This is all public information. There's lots of information available on this um, out there. So uh, as part of this experiment, uh, our platform was deployed on a data set that was pooled across three very large financial institutions data here in the UK. And uh, obviously I cannot speak publicly about the details of the project, but um, let's just say that we as a technology provider were quite, um, quite happy with the outcome uh, of that project as well. Now, this takes us very close um, towards the beginning of the pandemic. So obviously everything that happened throughout 2020 and I would say most of 2021 was basically a black hole. Uh, and in that regard, we're not very different from a typical early stage startup that is just about to uh, find the right product market fit. So unfortunately that period is, uh, is something that we, we had to basically write off from our history. But I'm quite happy to say that throughout most of 2022, so here we are in June 2022, what we're seeing so far is a great comeback, if you will, of basically where things really stalled at the beginning of 2020 with the pandemic, uh, with travel disrupted, with meetings disrupted, etc., with banks trying to figure out how to use Zoom and Microsoft meetings, <laughs> our teams rather, sorry. Yeah. Uh, we're just coming back to the point where basically things are starting to pick up exactly where they stopped in uh, in early 2020. So we're very hopeful. Now at, uh, at Future of Finance, we're very keen on, on digital identities as a solution to a lot of problems. And at the risk of sounding like a sort of Bolshevik interrogator of the 1930s, checking whether you have the right views. Can I ask you whether you think digital identities have any part to play in solving financial crime? I must say that this is not exactly our area, so I, I apologize in advance if I sound a bit out of depth. <laughs> um, uh, it, digital identity or identity in general is something that we take for granted in our system. So in other words, we expect um, financial institutions or data controllers, broadly speaking, we expect them to know who their customers are. Uh, that's not really needed for our purposes. And in fact, that's really you know, one of the core principles according to which we operate. And that goes back to the discussion that we've had about the GDPR is that we don't need to know that. Um, so so our, our technology is blind towards the, the identity part of the ecosystem, right? This is where we delegate towards the data controllers. Um, whether digital ID is, uh, is, a, is a core component of solving or addressing financial crime, I don't, I'm, I'm, to be honest with you, I don't really have a clear view on this. Um, I think that the problem is bigger than that, which is that in countries like the UK, uh, there isn't even a concept of ID in the first place, notably the digital one, right? So the, the problem is even more systemic, if you will. You know, in, in this country, I believe, and I could be wrong, but my understanding is that a person is not even required to have an ID, right? It's part of their fundamental right, I believe. So whether something is digital or not is not really the beginning of the problem. The beginning of the problem is, um, is an individual even required to have an ID? You know, I remember actually facing this when I had to identify myself to HMRC, I believe, in the very first place. Um, it was really a magic process of how, I, I don't even know how that got done. You know, eventually that got done, but there's no concept of me that is out there. And, and once I started digging deeper into this, I realized that it's by design. Mm -hmm. So how can we talk about digital ID in this country, for example, when we don't even have a concept of ID? Um, 
I don't know. Uh, fortunately, as I said, it's not something that we incorporate into our technology stack, but, uh, but I, I, I can't really speak much more beyond that. Mm -hmm. We've talked for a long time and I must let you go in a minute, but before I do it, I'll just go back to, to something more basic about, about central banks, which is that they are responsible, as you yourself said a, you know, a few minutes ago, for financial stability. And the modern central banking methodologies, if you like, arose out of the great financial crisis back in 2007-8. Uh, a lot of the regulation um, emerged from uh, the inability to work out who owed what to whom. And so the system imploded because of ignorance, really, as much as um, ignorance and fear rather than anything else. If you're, if you're operating in a, in a system of the type, financial system of the type you've described, where actually we know a lot more about who owes what to whom, we, we can see the, see the flows, we can see them in, in real time, so we can uncover those interconnections between different members of the financial system networks much, much more quickly. Is that one of the benefits of, of the, the flow data-based system which you've described? Does it actually add to financial stability because we know more? So yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't think that we would necessarily know who owes what to to whom, uh, but what we would know is is exactly as you described. The, what we would know is the crucial fault lines in the overall liquidity picture in the in the banking system in the financial market. What we've seen very clearly in in the networks and models that we have uncovered, both in synthetic data and in, in, and in real life data, is that these bottlenecks and these potential fault lines um, really reveal themselves quite well. And I think they may potentially empower any central bank with a much better understanding of the structure of the financial system and of the potential um, failure points or bottlenecks or, or fault lines within the financial system. That's for sure. Mm -hmm. Now, I, I divided your world, if you like, into, the, into these two parts, um, the financial crime part and the, and the CBDC part. But as I've listened to you, I've become more aware of the fact that actually it doesn't, it might be convenient to think of it like that, but actually these two capabilities are really ultimately one, or they can certainly work together. So you can start to use the same data set to combat financial crime, but also to uh, improve pockets of illiquidity in the economy, to enhance um, financial stability, you know, give people money if their part of the economy is, is damaged by COVID much more precisely, much more surgically. So I'm, would it be more sensible to think about this as really just a, a more complete understanding of the flows which are going on within a, a closed or indeed an open financial system, and therefore you can uh, enact or make policy decisions which are more effective? Are these ultimately just different facets of a single data set which intelligent policymakers can work off? Was it? Yeah, you're absolutely right. You're really talking about the same conceptual technology, which is applied slightly differently in the two different areas that you described. Mm -hmm. However, the big underlying difference is that essentially we're talking about two separate uh, forms of money. So when it comes to the, let's say, financial crime use case and understanding the, the overall banking um, account universe, et cetera, you're talking about analyzing commercial bank money, right? So that's, it simply is, as you said, the data set on which the, the technology is, is employed. 
when you talk about the CBDC use case, uh, you're talking about the not yet existent form of central bank retail digital money, right? So it's a hypothetical form of money that doesn't yet exist, but may exist should, should the central banks choose to implement it. And in that respect, the, pretty much the same or very similar technology applied to that world um, acts very differently. Um, I mean, not different, it acts very similarly to a, just a slightly different use case. Now, what prevents the, the, the same sort of CBDC style use cases in the commercial banking system space, actually nothing. And ironically, when we first started thinking about future flow, we really aimed it at the commercial banking space. Um, however, we realized that the, the, the task, the sort of the coordination um, um, task of you know, bringing multiple parties on the same page, et cetera, is humongously complex. And it's something that we will probably never see in our lifetime. We could be wrong, but uh, what, what's, what makes this a lot easier and a lot more elegant in the world of central bank digital money is that you have one single actor, which is just the central bank. And so there's no coordination um, challenge. But yes, conceptually, it's the same technology. Yeah. One final question for you. You alluded earlier to, to two lost years, 2020, 2021, you lost them to, to COVID-19. Conversations came to a halt as, as central banks and banks tried to work out how to use uh, Zoom and, and Microsoft Teams. Are those same audiences now, and I'm talking here of central banks, maybe other regulators, also commercial banks, are they actually showing genuine interest now in what you're describing to them? Uh, we are show, we're seeing genuine interest uh, in the financial crime space right now. There's no doubt about that. I'm very excited about all of the developments in that space. When it comes to the CBDC part of the business, I must say that our views remain very much um, on the radical side of the debate right now. Uh, I must admit that the mainstream narrative in the CBDC space is still very much focused on, on uh, that neutral simple mm -hmm. um, payment platform kind of um, level. So my impression so far is our views are a little bit too radical for most central banks that uh, we have spoken with so far. It could change. Um, so so that's, that remains to be seen. One thing that makes me quite hopeful though is that uh, as time passes, uh, we still haven't seen a single central bank uh, claim with credibility that what they're doing actually serves a purpose. That's one thing that is yet to come out um, of, of any central bank that we know of that is closely studying CBDC. So I remain convinced that the conversation around a neutral payment only CBDC concept is something that is unlikely to see a light of day simply because the de de decision-making parties will continue to admit to themselves, perhaps privately, that uh, there's no point in, in implementing one. And so our job is to stay around for as long as that takes place and to be there when they finally come to their senses and realize that, as you said, they have an opportunity to create a crucial element over the national infrastructure, of the national development strategy, over the national development story, um, and to do something a lot bigger and a lot more impactful and purposeful than creating a new payment system. So we'll be waiting for them. And Sobolevsky, thanks very much for taking the time to share your ideas with us. Thank you for your patience.